Tuesday, October the 4th, 2022, and welcome back to Goodfellas, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Vincent Van Gogh Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. <laughs> but <laughs> the one good ear that I do have, I will be listening intently to the stars of our show, the Goodfellas, as we refer to them. That would be the historian Neil Ferguson, the economist John Cochran, the geostrategist Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. They are Hoover Institution senior fellows all. And joining us today to round out a conversation about America's political landscape, no better person to turn to than Karl Rove. Karl Rove is, of course, one of America's most preeminent political strategists and consultants. He writes an always insightful column for the Wall Street Journal that you should read. And in case you're not aware of political details, he earned the nickname The Architect. It was given to him by no less than President George W. Bush on the occasion of President Bush being reelected. Karl, if I might history right, that is the only time that an American president has lost a popular vote, but then re been reelected four years later. Later. Carl, welcome to Goodfellows. Did you hear the one about the economist, the uh, general, and the uh, historian <laughs> who walk into a bar and meet a political hack? I mean, what is this going on? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> also, don't don't get carried away with the architect label. He also called me Turd Blossom, which was <laughs> the nickname that he gave me whenever I was right. He knew it and didn't want to admit it. So, good, good, good nicknames come with bad ones too. Hey, but, but architect is a it's a coveted title, right? I remember George Costanza on Seinfeld, Art Vandelay, the architect. I like uh, Art Vandelay. <laughs> Art Vandelay. He's an obscure writer. It was yeah, one of his uh, personas. I keep getting letters from state architectural boards saying, stop using the title. You're not accredited in our state. <laughs> Carl, before I hand you over to Neil, John, and HR, let me uh, ask you this question. Would you solve a mystery for me? Um, if the House goes Republican next month, which uh, odds are it will, uh, that will mark Carl the sixth time in the last nine congressional elections. It dates back to 2006 when you're in the White House. But six of the last nine congressional elections, at least one chamber of Congress has changed. Hardy hands. What's going on here? Is the problem the men and women we're sending to Washington, Carl? Is the problem with America's political parties? Or does the fault lie in the American voter who seems to be especially fickle these days? Well, uh, it's interesting. Go back to the last time this happened. The Gilded Age, after the election of 1872 and the re-election of Ulysses S. Grant, for the next quarter of a century, we have five presidential elections in a row in which nobody gets 50% of the vote. We have two right. years of Republican president, House and Senate, two years of a Democratic president, House and Senate. And the rest of the time, there's divided government, starting with the uh, capture of the House in 1874 by the Democrats for the first time in 18 years, and what's called the victory of the brigadiers, because so many former Confederate officers are elected. So I, I, I think there's some similarities between our time and the Gilded Age because politics was fundamentally broken then. Uh, we had uh, intense two-party competition, in part because white Democrats in the South were wiping out the black Republican vote on a scale that's impossible for the modern mind to really get its hands around. But we had intense partisan competition and there was a constant uh, change in, in the control of, of uh, the House representatives and the election of the of the only Democrat twice between uh, James Buchanan and FDR, actually in Woodrow Wilson. So, uh, you know, we, we, we're broken, our politics are broken like they were in the Gilded Age. And as a result, uh, we're likely to see the House flip again this next time uh, because uh, with a five vote margin and a midterm election after this election of a Democratic president, it's hard to believe that, uh, that they're gonna be able to hold on. Uh, I'm highly sympathetic to your analogy with the Gilded Age. I've said for a while that American politics is only shocking if you don't know anything about the 19th century, uh, but it, it's a very 19th century environment in, in Washington and around the country. And of course, the Gilded Age conjures up recollections of the inequality of that time. But how does this end? Because if I remember rightly, you get the progressive era at the end of the Gilded Age, and you also get a breakdown of the two-party system. Uh, do you think anything of that sort is conceivable? I, I could imagine the break, a breakdown of the two-party system, but, but I've been saying that for years and it doesn't happen. Well, I, I'm not certain I share the view that this leads to the progressive era. What, what leads to the progressive era is the assassination of a moderate uh, conservative president in the form of William McKinley and his replacement by the wild man, Theodore Roosevelt. That's also, I, I wouldn't suggest, I mean, there's a year outside of the presidential election of 1912 and 1916, we have a, a 30 some odd year period of Republican dominance at all levels. It, the 1920s are the last time that there are 
4,000 Republican state legislators and less than 3,000 Democratic state legislators, for example. So again, I think it's the, the serenity of that 30 some odd year period between 1896 and 1932 is interrupted by an exuberant personality who decides that uh, he's going to go in a slightly different direction. And then in, in 1912 decides that his chosen successor is not worthy of the office and that uh, the people are clamoring for his return. So other than that, though, if you look at the Congress and uh, the governorships and state legislative races, uh, the, the, there's a Republican dominance at all levels that, ex that exists for 30 some odd years. Uh -huh. John? I, I was just wondering whether the fundamental thing is, is uh, not just partisanship, but the incompetence. <laughs> uh, each party comes in and, and uh, promptly does... Uh, things that the, the majority of the electorate didn't want them to do. So naturally they turn on them. But I think we've hit to a, a broader theme rather than that one, which is I think where we'd like to go. Uh, I'm I'm very worried by the, the falling apart of the norms, the escalating tit for tat. Uh, we've seen it most recently in the, the new tactic is to proclaim the previous administration illegitimate. Um, <clears throat> unfortunately, Republicans don't have much of a leg to stand on on complaining about the Democrats uh, inventing that one. Uh, now complaining the Supreme Court is illegitimate. So there is a point at which um, each battle becomes a, uh, a, a scorched earth affair and the whole thing goes downhill. Well, again, I hate to say we've been there before, but we have. Uh, I mean, think about this. Remember uh, last year, 2021, the House of Representatives said, you know, uh, Marianna Meeks got elected in Iowa by seven votes. Maybe we ought to have a committee look into what, seeing if that election was entirely legitimate. And after a few days, they said, well, you know what? Maybe we shouldn't because the last time we did that was it was 1974 in the bloody seventh of of uh, Indiana, and it and and we kicked out a Republican who had gotten elected and certified, and replaced him with his Democrat opponent in a narrow election, and it and it poisoned the well in the House for a ten years. For a better part of a decade, people were still fighting over that. Think about this: between 1875 and 1902, how many times do you think the majority party in the House of Representatives picked out a member of the minority who got reelected by a narrow margin and replaced him, kicked him out, phoning up an election challenge and kicked him out? Want to hazard a guess? 1875-1902. What's your number? Cochran, what's your number? This is what I love about you, by the way. I'm just going to interject. You know every fact there ever is to be known about American yeah. politics. All right. You're avoiding the question, but I'm going to... I'm, I'm, I'm avoiding the question. 55 times. Wow. 55 times. And uh, in fact, in, in, in 1884, the reform-minded uh, member from Northeast Ohio who'd won re-election in, uh, in the previous 1882 midterms by 50 votes, William McKinley is kicked out by the Democratic majority. And the only unusual thing about it is that seven Democrats, including the first Democratic speaker in 18 years, Randall of Pennsylvania, vote to retain him as a mark of respect for him. The fever is finally broken in 1902 when a Democrat from Colorado uh, listens intently to the committee hearing on the election challenge to his election, stands up on the floor of the House and says, I've paid close attention to the evidence that has been laid out and it is clear to me that I was elected on the basis of fraud. And I ask all the members of the House to join me today in voting to expel me and replace me with my Republican opponent who was actually duly elected. Two years later, he won the election for governor of Colorado on the slogan of Honest John. But I mean, look, we, 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 are broke. we were broken then. And I mean, we're broken today. I agree with you. I worry about the norms, but let's not kid ourselves. We, we've been, we, you want to go through the election of 1876? I mean, my God, you know, uh, senators from, from, from New Hampshire carrying, uh, you know, uh, uh, suitcases full of money to Florida to make certain that everything is greased. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it was a remarkable election and lots of norms were challenged then. And again, what happens is the good common sense of the American people ultimately makes itself expressed as it was in the election of 1896 and things sort of get back into the normal track of things. But but yeah, we're, our politics is broken and don't, don't get me started on election deniers. I had to go through 2000 and 2004. And I remember in 2005, these lunatics on the House of Representatives uh, floor, talking about how how Ohio had been had been stolen from John Kerry by computer servers uh, flipping votes from Kerry from Kerry to Bush, 
and um, and 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 alleging that there was a, a whistleblower to this whole affair, a Republican political consultant whom I ordered to be killed. He died in an airplane crash. He was a, a solo pilot and he was flying his little plane back from Washington, D.C. And literally a lawsuit was filed in Ohio that alleged that I, I'd ordered his murder. So, you know, and, and guess what? The election deniers were people like James Clyburn, the third ranking member of the, uh, of the House, two current committee chairs, and the sainted John Lewis of, of Georgia were all election deniers. And so I, you know, I, I, I'm, 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 I was one of the first people to say all this stuff about the 2020 election. I wrote it a column in November that said, this is not going to change the election. This is ridiculous. And of course, I got excoriated by a guy who's now living in Bedminster, New Jersey and Palm Beach. But but, um, you know, we've been through this before in certain But in the modern, we, I'll just follow up and then give HR a turn. It, it, there was plenty of election shenanigans in the old days. And, and you fight by means legal and illegal. But I get a sense that the, the um, firm tactic of saying this current incumbent is illegitimate and therefore that justifies all means legal and illegal of opposing him or I, or I guess her, that, that seems newer than just a little bit of shenanigans in the election. Well, I'm not certain it was a little bit of shenanigans in the elections. I mean, think about this. 1896, a majority of the eligible voters in the state of Mississippi, Louisiana, and South Carolina are black men who are overwhelmingly Republican. And the best that out of those three states that uh, William McKinley can get is 24% of the vote in in Louisiana. In Mississippi, where 60%, nearly 60% of the eligible voters are black men, he gets 6% of the vote. So, you know, there may be, you know, that, that the level of shenanigans may have been slightly higher than it is today. But, oh, but am, I, am I worried about, am I worried about, uh, you know, January 6th? Yeah. I mean, the whole idea, the notion of organizing uh, whoever, a mob, uh, and, or, or encouraging the mob, uh, or believing that the vice president of the United States has the unilateral authority to, uh, to kick out delegate, you know, electoral college votes, uh, these are all problematic, and and you know you can't find an exact equivalent in the in the Gilded Age, though you can certainly find violence of a different nature. Well, I was, I was just going to say, you know, Rutherford B. Hayes, you know, he he was the in 1877, I think he withdrew the last federal troops from the South, and then you had the failure of Reconstruction, you had the rise of the Ku Klux Klan and Jim Crow, as Carl said, to uh, based really on a racist ideology to ex- to exclude blacks from the American political system. Uh, and 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 I think that uh, you know today we have other ideological problems, whether they're extreme left uh, or extreme right, however you want to characterize these groups. And what's common is that is that they don't acknowledge the 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 the, um, the right of the others to to have their vote uh, to, and to and to have their say in how we're governed. And it's this lack of of confidence in our democratic processes and institutions, I think is extremely dangerous, Carl. So I'd just like to ask you, how do we get out of this, right? How, how do we how do we get out of this time in which really political leaders on, on from both parties have compromised uh, our, their, our principles you know, to score partisan political points or to perpetuate conspiracy theories uh, or um, really to just undermine our confidence in, in who we are as Americans and in our democratic institutions and processes? What do we need? Well, first, before I answer your question, may I say, I hate to be critical, but you ought to find a way on the birthday of Rutherford B. Hayes to say something nice about him rather than to quote to him. (laughs) You know that? Did you go out of your way simply because it's his birthday? I didn't even know it was his birthday, Carl. I hate to admit it. 1822 or something like that. (laughs) I mean, my God. I mean, and not only that, but he's a fellow veteran. My God. But uh, no, look, I look. uh, Well, how did we get out of the violence of the of the uh, of of the Gilded Age? I mean, think about it. I mean, we we got the famous moment in uh, is it eighteen? It's eighteen ninety. The Republicans have taken the House, the Senate, and the White House in eighteen eighty eight. They were civilized back then. So they, um, you know, swore in the Congress in March and then sent them home because there was no air conditioning. And in the fall of 1889, Democrats in the House who are in a, a sort of similar today, you know, there was a very small Democratic, uh, a very strong Democratic majority and a very slim Republican majority uh, edge in the, in the House. The Democrats announced they're not going to answer the roll call in order to deny the House a quorum. And so they bring up a vote. They bring up a bill. Remember, we had the thing we're going to shut down the government. Well, they'd bring up a bill back then and they'd have a vote on it. 
the Democrats would lose. They'd say there's no quorum present. They'd call the roll. The Democrats wouldn't answer the roll call. There wouldn't be a quorum. And for uh, the fall of 1889 and into 1890, not a single bill passes the House of Representatives. Finally, Speaker uh, Thomas Brackett Reed has had enough of it. So he um, announces uh, on one particular day they're going to have a vote. The vote is to expel a West Virginia Democrat who won election by 50 votes so they can pad their Republican majority. And uh, he tells the sergeant at arms, take up uh, take up station at the doors and don't allow a single member to get out of the House. And when they finish uh, having the vote, a Democrat stands up from Kentucky, I believe it was, and says no quorum is present. And uh, they call the roll. No Democrat answers the roll. There's no quorum. There's a lack of a quorum. And Reed turns to the clerk and says, the chair directs the clerk to show Mr. Jones president, Mr. Smith president, calls out the name of every Democrat on the floor of the House and show to show that they're present. There's a quorum. Uh, all hell breaks loose. Every Democrat runs for the, for the doors. One Democrat gets out. Constantine August of Russ County, Texas, beats the crap out of the sergeant in arms, uses his cowboy boots to kick out the slats of the door and make good his escape. You know, this kicks off a three and a half month long, I think it's no, maybe two and a half month long battle that ultimately ends in the Supreme Court as to whether or not the speaker has the right to do this. Um, and they uphold the right of Czar Reed to do it. And during the debate, one of the Democrats stands up again, another text, and we're so, you know, we're so contributing to the climate of the times. William Henry Hottie Martin of Athens says, points a bony finger at his, at his, uh, at the speaker, he's a six foot, six inches tall, fought the entire civil war with Hood's brigade. He turns to his fellow Democrats, points at Reed and says, if any member will order me to remove this dictator from its position of power upon the podium, I will do so by force forthwith. Reed says, the honorable gentleman from Texas is out of order. Martin is so pissed off the next day he shows up, takes a seat on the floor of the House of Representatives right in front of the speaker, pulls out his 16 inch long Bowie knife and spends the entire day sharpening it on his boot sole in an attempt to menace Reed. So this goes on. This is the tone of the times. And what happens is in comes a guy, William McKinley, completely underappreciated today and says, we're all in this together. And he takes it. He makes an extraordinary effort to unify the country, both in his campaign and then as president. And we enter into a new part of politics where, you know, the norms start to reassert themselves. And I think this is, is going to happen here. We're going to have to have a president who who really means it when he returns to the norms that we have been uh, accustomed to in the 70s, 80s, 90s and early part of the, the, this century. Carl, let me try something out on you. Uh, the, the missing variable in the conversation so far is the changing role of the United States in the world. It is not accidental that the move away from the toxic politics you're describing coincides with the advent of a global role uh, for the United States. For some people, it's full-blooded American empire. Uh, uh, it's more euphemistically phrased by Woodrow Wilson, but the, the real theme that takes us pretty much from the 1890s through to, I would say, George W. Bush, is that American global power requires some level of bipartisanship because uh, national security arguments are, uh, are ultimately dominant when, when there's a crisis. Of course, it ebbs and flows, but pretty reliably, uh, when the national security issue becomes dominant, as happened after 9-11, there's national unity. And that was a recurrent feature of the 20th century, too. I wonder if that will happen again. Uh, let me tell you something, some very recent history. Four weeks ago, I was sitting listening to two senators, a Republican and a Democrat, talking about foreign policy. They were in foreign soil. We were in Italy, uh, uh, Lindsey Graham and Bob Menendez. And what struck me was that they had essentially a single bipartisan view on foreign policy and specifically on the questions of, of China and Russia. And I wonder if what's really going to change, and maybe it's already happening, is that a consensus has emerged on foreign policy that is ending the chronic polarization that has characterized Washington in recent times. Do you see that? And if so, could it be the way that we get to uh, higher levels of political cooperation, if not national unity? Yeah, well, I think you you put yourself uh, put your finger on a very important thing. Look at the look at the semiconductor bill, and I'm not going to defend each and every provision of it. But where did that come from? That came from a freshman Republican senator from Indiana named Todd Young, and a senior Democrat, Mark Warner, 
having conversations to say we have a concern, a mutual concern about our vulnerability in the age of the semiconductor to relying upon factories in Taiwan and China to potential Chinese domination of, of, of a strategic element. So I think you're right. The problem is that that and, and I hope it I hope it goes along those lines. What I'm worried about is I see an, an element inside the Republican Party that is is frankly um, uh, apologist for Putin and neo-isolationist. And I think I, I see it today, a distinct minority inside the party, but I see it as a viable minority that could be problematic over the long haul. But they, they look actually, like they, they made actually, a terrible bet. I mean, all those people who bet on Putin yeah. uh, in Europe as well, on the yeah. populist right, look like they've just blown themselves up. Oh, and yeah. it's going to be it's going to be a stain on their reputations that can never be effaced. I, I, HR. I, so. I mean, I'm struck by I'm struck by the continuities in foreign policy from the Trump administration to the Biden administration. This is part of the same story that there hasn't really been a huge break in policy towards China. The no. attempt to break on the Middle East has basically failed. And uh, do you do you see any signs of that bipartisanship I'm talking about? Absolutely. And just on Carl's point about the uh, about the CHIPS Act that started as the America Competes Act under Senator Risch when when the Republicans were in the minority in the Senate, it passed seamlessly over to Menendez. Uh, and then it went to the House and they shoveled a bunch of pork into it. And then a reconciliation, they they you know, they, they saved it. And it's a, it's a net positive uh, piece of legislation. So there are places where we can work together. And I'll tell you, when I was National Security Advisor, I really tried, you know, for the for the brief period of time I was there to foster a bipartisan approach to foreign policy, because I do think, and I'd love to hear Carl's thoughts on this, foreign policy, I guess, the place to go to maybe reverse this polarization. Like, hey, who wants North Korea with the most destructive weapons on Earth, you know, firing missiles over over Japan as they did a, a few days ago? Uh, I mean, who wants Vladimir Putin to be able to continue his you know destructive uh, campaign in Ukraine and, and, and broadly, uh, even more broadly? Who wants China's you know, a, a promotion of its authoritarian mercantilist model to succeed, right? Who wants Iran, you know, to continue uh, to, to subjugate as brutally its own people as it's doing now, as well as continue its four decade plus proxy war against us? I mean, so I think that these are, you know, these are issues that we should be able to come together on. But, you know, you know, I, I just think uh, that, that um, you know, that you have to foster that at the at the highest levels of leadership. And, and I have not seen either President Biden be able to do it. And certainly, of course, uh, President Trump was quite a polarizing uh, figure on a, a number of, of uh, levels. But Carl, is that is that viable? Do Americans even care about foreign policy anymore? I mean, is this a way to approach the polarization problem set? Well, I, I think it's, I don't know how interested most Americans are in foreign policy, but they, they do believe on some instinctive level, some gut level, that America has a special role to play in the world and that we live in a global, uh, a global environment where we have to have friends and have to be concerned about what's abroad. That's that's why this enormous wave of support for Ukraine that you saw reflected in the polls was uh, was was so strong. It was because of the gut instinct in the American people. I, I, I do like you. I, I think it, I, I agree that this is an area that can help take some of the polarized nature of our politics out. I don't think, however, it's going to happen from the White House first and foremost. I think it's going to happen uh, if the Republicans take the House and if the Republicans take the Senate, if you've got Rish and McCall, Rish of Idaho and McCall of Texas as the respective committee chairs, those two guys understand the necessity of having uh, a bipartisan agreement upon foreign policy and they are adults. And I suspect we will see those kind of committees run significantly different than the kinds of committees that sort of are bent on um, polarization, like the you know oversight committee and judiciary. Uh, so yeah, I do think that there's a possibility. And you look also at uh, Adam Smith and Mike Rogers of of, uh, of uh, Armed Services, and you look at uh, Turner, who's likely to be the chairman of Intel. Uh, you're not going to be particularly happy about Adam Schiff, but he's going to be a guy who understands there's a necessity for bipartisan cooperation and understanding committee among his committee members. So um, all of that is to say we'll, we'll, we'll have some change. Again, though, it's going to take the president to do it. And my concern is that I think President Biden missed the opportunity. Um, you know, he got too concerned with becoming more transformational uh, in his image than Barack Obama. 
and and less concerned with the issue of you know let's 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 find a way to unify the country like I I led everybody to believe I would. We do seem to be able to be um, by bipartisan when it's out of the headlines and no, yeah. uh, you know various stuff gets done. But I I do want to take. Um, <clears throat> The combination of our two questions here, uh, um, why are, so what's going on with the midterms? This ought to be a T-ball home run. Why is it even close <laughs> uh, yeah. along with where are we going to go? Uh, and it seems to be Republicans in particular need a set of ideas that are both politically effective and true. The intersection of those ideas is difficult. I'll challenge you guys on the Semiconductor Chips Act. Uh, $250 billion down a rat hole of industrial policy to turn this into something on the effect of our shipbuilding industry is probably not a great idea. But um, there's lots of other places that we, you know, what does... What is the Republican Party going to stand for? Now, of course, number one, we, we got to get get rid of that gallstone named Trump. Now, I, I don't mean to insult any of our readers, but Trump will the Trump and Trump's causes will not win. So, so long as you're you're infused with Trump's various vendettas, that that party's not going to go anywhere. Uh, but what are the ideas that it will offer the American people? It's it should be. A layup. The schools are a disaster. Crime is going up. Inflation is like it hasn't been since 1971. There's this crazy climate policy being insinuated into every part of the federal government, its regulatory agencies, and you're seeing in gas prices exactly what it's going. What, what are we offering them? Industrial policy, protection. What um, is there a hope of a resurgence of a set of coherent ideas to offer the American people that um, will attract them to what should be a blowout? Yeah. Well, first of all, there's a difference between uh, policy and the politics of the moment. The politics of the moment, people beating up on you know high prices and uh, the open border and uh, defund the police and nutty candidates who want to you know take a third of the people out of uh, prisons of Pennsylvania and say we're going to be safe. All that stuff's going on. What's not what is not publicly visible and which has not been a, a, a key component of the fall election is what's the Republican agenda going forward. Exactly. Now, having said that, something remarkable has happened uh, from, from, of all people, Kevin McCarthy. Uh, last August, a year ago, he appointed 13, I think it's 13 committees. And uh, he named the committees and the committee chairs and blah, blah. Each of them devoted to a single issue. And I took a look at it and I said, wait a minute. These chairs are by and large substantive people, like the chairman of the committee of on China is Mike McCall. The chairman of the committee on the economy is a, a Republican whom very few people have heard of, uh, Patrick McHenry of North Carolina, who's a very serious member. Not only that, but all of the members of the committees are relatively substantive people. It's, this is not the Matt Gates, Laurie Boebert. Uh, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene wing of the Republican Party. These people are by and large the substantive members of the Committee of Jurisdiction. So on China, you have substantive members from the Intel Armed Services uh, and, and the Ways and Means and Foreign Relations and Armed Services on the committee. On the, on the economy, you have financial services, Ways and Means, Energy and Commerce and so forth. So I got intrigued by this. So I started calling up some of the committee chairs whom I knew and I said, you know, um, am I misreading this? He actually wants you to come up with ideas about what you think we ought to do if we take the majority. Yep, that's right. And he wants you to have discussions with the people that you're going to have jurisdictional issues with, because a big part of getting an agenda going is figuring out what's going to fall under energy and commerce and what's going to be under ways and means. So he's got all the major players on these committees. So as you discuss this, you can sort of wrangle out some of these issues. Third of all, yep, that's right. I said, third of all, he's expecting this to come from the bottom up, not the top down. He's not looking for you to come in and say, what do you want us to do? He's, he's saying to you, go, go on and discuss this area of issue and come up with what we ought to do. Oh, absolutely. And I said, well, that also sort of assumes that he wants this to be done in regular, man, in regular order. This is not going to be imposed from the top down, but come from the bottom up, which means you're going to have to do this through the subcommittee and then the full committee and bring it to the House floor, rather than having the speaker say, I am giving this blind, we are writing this in the speaker's office, blah, everybody's got to vote for it. I said, absolutely, otherwise we wouldn't have taken it on. Now, I don't know if that eventually works out, but I think it will work out in some places and, and the, the more that works out, the better, because that's a part of restoring the norms. Because look, again, I go back to the issue of 
look, and again, I'm not going to defend every, you know, I'm not an industrial policy guy, uh, but, but the fact of the matter is you had Democrats and Republicans saying, let's work this through in normal order. Can we find areas of agreement? Can we compromise on things and come up with something that we think directionally moves the country uh, in a positive way? And I think that's going to happen in the House. I, and if you look, we will look back in January and say, look how many of the chairs of those committees ended up being chairs of actual committees and responsible for doing things. I bet you a dime to a dollar that McCall is chairman of House Foreign Relations and Patrick McHenry is chairman of Financial Services. I don't know who's going to be Ways and Means, but 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 both of the guys who are being talked about for Ways and Means were both on some of those committees. Carl, I want to ask you a real simple question, because some of this is like the technicalities of how Washington works, and right. it can feel some of our, our viewers getting a little bit, I don't know, distracted. So here's something simple. Order is what you meant to say, but wonderful. <laughs> I'm very polite. Conservative is, conservatism is changing. It used to be about economics, cutting taxes, rolling back the state, John Cochran territory. That stuff doesn't work so well anymore. Political. Conservatism now is about culture. Uh, this is something that Ron DeSantis understands very well. Uh, and this is why he's the front runner, at least in the prediction markets, to be the Republican nominee. Long way to go. Leave that aside. The British conservatives have just proved that the old 1980s agenda of economic conservatism doesn't fly. In fact, Liz Truss and Krasi Kwarteng have crashed their government more or less before it got off the runway because they went for a radical tax-cutting strategy that had no credibility with markets and ignored uh, the advice that others gave them to focus on issues of education, uh, issues of political correctness, uh, the cultural issues, which people these days feel more strongly about and where I think conservatives can win. Am I right in thinking that as we approach 2024, the way that Republicans should think is not it's the economy. They should actually focus on these cultural questions where they have a big, big chance of pulling voters, particularly Hispanic voters, but not only Hispanic voters, over uh, from the Democratic side. How do you think about that big question, culture v. economics? I think I think it shouldn't be either or. And it, frankly, in our moments of success has not been either or. It's been both. I mean, part of the reason that Reagan was successful was he he was talking about the big one of the several of the big social issues of the time, restoration of American confidence uh, and uh, respect for law and order uh, and uh, respect for limited government and, and for life. Uh, all of these things uh, have both. And some, all of these things have implications, and many of them are, you know, uh, are, are, are not just social or economic, but are both. And, but, but we've always been a, a party where your successful message is one that is both uh, economic and societal. And so, but, but it, it, and it waxes and wanes. I think by the time we get to 2024, if I, look, I'm not an economist. I didn't even stay in Cochran's guest room last night. Uh, so, you know, but I think by 24, the economic issues are going to be important because how many, how many, what's the likelihood of going through a recession? Uh, and, and the spending, they're not going to stop. The, we're going to stop the spending, but the inflation is going to take some time to ring out of the system. But, but do, are the economic issues uh, subordinate to 20 in 2024 to societal issues? Maybe. But, but at minimum, the, you have to emphasize both. Take, take a look at what, how these Senate races this year are. Are, are coming together. Yes, they're pounding away at the rising cost and inflation and blah, blah. But one of the things that has made Wisconsin and Pennsylvania move pretty dramatically in the Republican direction is, an, and not, is a cultural issue, crime, because you have two lunatics on the Democratic tickets, respectively, in Wisconsin and, and Pennsylvania who said extraordinarily bizarre things on the issue of law and order and crime and, and society that, that make them incredibly vulnerable. But a successful party in America has always been economic and, and non-economic. It's also been a party that has a strain of populism in it. And you now populism is more you know, evident in both parties today than it's been. But if you go back, one of the things that made it successful for Ronald Reagan to take office was a belief that, you know, that the, the pointy heads in Washington were, uh, were thinking that America's best days were behind us and that uh, you know, they were in, all huddled around their fires in their cardigans, so, you know, bemoaning the, the 
future of America. And, uh, uh, and so, you know, be able to say the elites have got it wrong and the ordinary people of America will set it right, but was powerful then and, and remains a powerful. Carl, I'd like to continue on the cultural front for a minute. You're talking to four gentlemen who live under the yoke of Gavin Newsom in California. My condolences. Come, come. You can be free in Texas. Well, the governor, move, seems, move. More to, the governor seems more to say these days in your state, Texas and Florida, than he does California, and he's picking up cultural issues, abortion in particular. Two questions, Carl. Number one, when you look at Gavin Newsom, do you just see a California version of your friend Robert Francis O'Rourke? And then second question, do you think 2024, the near future of America, really is a referendum between how Californians live in and are governed and how Floridians live in and are governed? Oh, I think that's I think that's a big way, a good way of putting it. The red state, blue state, and the epitome of, of red state is Florida or Texas, and the epitome of blue state is, you know, Washington, Oregon, or California. Yeah. But yeah, I think Goodhair will be a, a, a significant candidate uh, in the 2024 elections and, and more power to him. Um, you know, it's... it's um, it really is remarkable that that I mean, I, I, we Austin is being inundated with California economic refugees, and it's amazing. They say, "Oh my God, I got much hell of a bigger house for a hell of a lot less money, and my paycheck seems to be bigger, even though my salary is exactly the same." But I mean, oh my God, I'm so glad to be here. Uh, oh, incidentally, uh, how do I make Texas look like California? No. <laughs> Please don't they bring their voting bring habits with them. <laughs> yeah, yeah well, the no, actually, they're not. Actually, uh, they're not. There's a very interesting study. I don't want to put too much in it because it's one survey done by a small firm, but they took 900 people who'd registered to vote in uh, Texas for the first time since November of 2020. And they are something like, and I'm going to be off a little bit on these numbers, they're like 44% Republican, 28% Democrat rest independent and their planned vote, their generic ballot for this November is 59R41D. And hmm. those are those are those are migrants, either migrants within Texas or migrants moving into Texas from other states. Mm-hmm. You know, I had a weird I had a weird I'm not going to use his, his name because it'll be public, but there's a, a California tech billionaire who moved to Austin. He called me up and he said, would I come to lunch? And I went to a lunch uh, at his house uh, west of Austin and uh, Sitting around the table were four other California tech billionaires and a, a former Mexican national, now U.S. citizen, who runs his family's companies, his family's empire from Austin, Texas. And I'm thinking, I remember in Austin when you could name everybody in town who had a million dollar house and we got, you know, six billionaires sitting around the table. I can't imagine who you're talking about, Carl. It just completely uh, eludes me. But let, let me say that I agree with you that the people who are moving uh, to Texas are moving partly or largely because of disgust with California's dysfunctional yeah. politics. And it seems highly unlikely that those people would then be actively supportive of Democrats in Texas. On the contrary, I can think of some people who've made that move in the last couple of years who immediately set to work to, t- to tackle the po- problem of people living on the streets in Austin, because, of course, they'd seen what that policy had done to turn California, uh, San Francisco, yeah. oh, rather, yeah. into, into San Francisco. Uh, so let's talk, if we can, a little bit about the road to 2024. Uh, I had a question that only you can answer. If if I were uh, the Republican, a Republican would be nominee. Would I want the Republicans to do really, really well in the midterms, or just so so? I'm thinking that for them to do really well and take Senate and House might actually make life more difficult for a candidate in 2024 than for us to have divided government. Am I right about that? I think that's right. Um, I'm not certain it's good for the country to have divided government for the, I mean, you know, a Republican House and a Democratic Senate and a Democratic president for the next couple of years. But you're right. I mean, if you've got a Republican Senate and a Republican House, A, the expectation of the American people that they do something constructive is there and B, they won't be able to get as much done as some people might expect. And C, they might do things that the presidential candidate says is not helpful to their general election messaging. On the other hand, you know, it's going to be what it's going to be. And I'd, I'd frankly, over the next two years, from the perspective of policy, I'd rather have a Republican House and a Republican Senate because it would allow us to keep the Biden administration from uh, doing as much, you know, damage to the economy and to the country uh, as possible. Um, and it would, and it would also begin. It would also begin to lay the predicate for, um, you know, a Republican president to come in and and unite, 
uh, not just govern on the basis of, you know, Republican or Democrat, you know, I'm a Republican, I've got a Republican House and Senate, but to say I'm, I'm, I'm a Republican president, I should have confidence that I can work across party lines on things of, of common good where we can. Se- second question, and then I'll hand over to, to John and HR. We talked a lot on this show recently about the 1970s and how we're sort of rerunning it economically and in other ways too. And I've certainly said more than once that, that I sometimes think the Biden administration is the, the Carter administration with dementia. Uh, and that therefore this will be a one-term presidency. The question is, does it end the way that the Carter presidency did, not only with stagflation and quote unquote malaise, but also with a sense of massive international crisis. I mean, let's not forget the Iranian revolution, the invasion of Afghanistan. It, it felt like things were really uh, blowing up and, and, and all attempts at detente had ended in failure. Those things paved the way for Ronald Reagan and a transformational uh, presidency, a really transformational one, unlike the fake transformational one we have at the moment. Can you imagine a scenario in which the late 70s play out and we end up with a 1980 type election in 2024? Or is this just the wrong analogy? No, I think it's a great analogy. I'm not certain so much about the 1980 election and the aftermath of it is uh, is is based in the personality and the leadership of Ronald Reagan. Uh, but yeah, I, I see I see similarities. I was the young kid, incidentally, people forget this. In 1980, I was the executive director of the Texas Victory Committee for Reagan Bush. That was the, the, the unified campaign led by our governor, Bill Clements. We'd had a brief period of time during which we had not elected a Republican governor or a statewide constitutional officer for 114 years. And uh, Clements came in in 1978 and made the defeat of uh, Jimmy Carter uh, a prime uh, goal of his. People forget Texas was a battleground state. We were one of the 10 battleground states of the of the uh, 1980 presidential election. Uh, and I, I, I happened to office in downtown Austin and I look out and down on the governor's mansion and just north of the governor's mansion is a parking lot and then a, a, an office building, an apartment building called the Westgate that overlooks the Capitol. That parking lot was the site of a funeral home. And that was where our head campaign headquarters was. I had to take a draining table and remove it from my office before it could become my office. But yeah, I, you know, the, the late 70s could be today again, and they could end in the same way. Uh, it'll be different because he, he was in, in so many ways sui generis. Uh, but I, 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 I'd use that Latin word for HR. I, I know he's... The, <laughs> We're always lapsing into Latin on Goodfellas. That uh, that, uh, that scenario depends a lot on on what happens abroad. Um, uh, you know, if if uh, it's amazing how quickly we forgot losing a war in Afghanistan, uh, but uh, if we if if Ukraine um, stabilizes or or ends, thank, and hopefully with the Ukrainians winning and and hasn't blown up, and if Z doesn't invade Taiwan, um, you know that. That outcome, or on the other hand, we could be still bleeding in Ukraine, and and Z could have have a embargo around Taiwan, and then all of a sudden you're in in that situation. So that puts a lot of the agency for what happens in into those particular flashpoints. I want to uh, I want to hope actually I'm still rankling at Neil's insults to economists. I actually want to hope that economics is not part of the politics. Um, Liz Truss. Her economics is actually right. <laughs> it's just miserably sold uh, and was not the political rallying point. I think you're right, actually. It would be lovely if economics could be sort of a thing of technical competence in the background. And right now, in fact, the cultural issues, what's going on in your schools, what's going on in the forced DEI training in your work, uh, the, the sense that the elites are completely incompetent, the sense that the government is completely incompetent, the, the FDA and the CDC, the politicization of, of everything that should be just running at least as uh, at least like the DMV, which runs badly, but but not politically. Uh, I do think that that if you want to be political, I, I, I want to cheer for economics, not, not being a central part of the political message, because then it's more likely to be competently run. I mean, I think inflation is going to be a big issue unless I'm, I'm completely wrong. My sense is that the, the Federal Reserve is going to blink just like the Bank of England did uh, a few days ago at the first sign of financial trouble, at the first sign of financial trouble, that the whole I am Paul Volcker script is going to be discarded. Uh, and just like Arthur Burns in the 70s, uh, Jay Powell will, will not bring inflation back under c- 
control. But but I think that I could be wrong about that. They may they may prove me wrong and get away with it. But I think if inflation is still an issue going into 2024, it's bound to be a big issue with the voters. Well, either um, inflation is going to be an issue or the recession is going to be an issue. And, right. Uh, the recession is going to cause an explosion of what are you doing? Plus, it's going to cause an explosion of bailouts right, left and center. It's the federal budget is going to be a, a huge problem. So one one way or another, there is going to be enough economics that I, somebody like a Ronald Reagan who could turn that into a politically uh, viable message could do a great job with it. Well, but yeah, HR will tell us how it'll all come out sunny. Yeah. <laughs> Aren't we sort of replaying history? Because, I mean, uh, Volcker did not start on January 20th, 18, you know, 1981. He began several years before and Reagan didn't come in and have a, uh, the first two years were not economically successful. We got our teeth handed to us in 1982 in the midterms in part because the economy was so bad. Now, on the other hand, it made for a great television by the, by early 1984, when it was a morning in America, because the economy was roaring back. But you know, I look at the time frame and say, you know, this is this is like this is like last time only worse because they the inflation began in in uh, in 2021 and they begin to ratchet up interest rates in 2022. So we've got you know potentially you know recession next year and bad news going into the presidential election. There, there was three waves of inflation in the 1970s. We don't get to just necessarily jump to 1979. We probably get 1972, well, you're, 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 you're forgetting that we whipped inflation now, as I recall, with those brilliant <laughs> buttons, Jerry Ford. Exactly. I got one lying around here someplace. HR, you're being very quiet. You must be thinking it's a very clever Latin phrase. <laughs> well, you know, I, I mean, I'm not the domestic politics guy, obviously, you know, but but what, what I'd like to ask you, Carl, is where, where do we get somebody who's more of a unifier, who can get to the politics of addition instead of doubling down on on narrow and relatively extreme political basis? Uh, can, can, it, can it occur in America today with our oh, primary sure. system? I mean, how, how do we get... How do we get leaders, you know, to 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 uh, you know to run for office and then to succeed? Uh, who who uh, you know who who are determined, you know, to to represent all of Americans? Yeah. Well, getting getting to run is not the difficult thing because because anybody who occupies a high office in America uh, in this environment is going to think of themselves as a potential president, and they're, they're going to be eager to run. The question is whether they see a path to victory in that. That depends on their their vision and the and the climate of the times and the nature of the party, but but look, it's it's amazing. Last year, on May seventh, we had uh, about five hundred people in Austin, Texas, who had contributed money to our voter identification and voter registration get out the vote effort. We had five billionaires sitting in the front row, and for uh, they heard from the following people. I'm going to list them in alphabetical order. That was not the order they appeared, but. Yeah, they heard from Chris Christie, Tom Cotton, Ron DeSantis, Mike Pence, Mike Pompeo, Marco Rubio, Rick Scott, and Tim Scott, each of whom was interviewed for 45 minutes by a member of the Texas congressional delegation, all of whom took their responsibilities seriously. One of the best political meetings I've ever been to in my life. And what afterwards, when all the luminaries had flown away and people were having their getaway drink on the on the patio outside, the message was, God, we have a bench, we have a team, we have right. real talent. And we're going to do that again next year uh, for, again, to reward the people who've underwritten the voter registration, get out the vote effort. And uh, I'm, I'm confident we've got a lot of people who want to run. I mean, Nikki Haley wanted to come that day, but couldn't because uh, she was uh, her daughter was graduating from college. We just had Glenn Youngkin here in Austin who met with a group of Republicans during the Texas Trib Fest. Now, people walked away saying, oh, my God, you know, look at that. There's a talk about talk about. Uh, Ferguson's uh, education guy. I mean, he talked about uh, combating wokeism and education and, uh, you know, to, doing what he could on diversity uh, uh, to uh, un, un, unleash some of the powers of meritocracy. So we got a lot of people out there and I think they're going to, they're going to, a lot of them are going to necessarily offer themselves up because they see 2024 as a real opportunity. Carl, I can't, I, I don't think a show in which Donald Trump is referred to as a goldstone would be complete if someone didn't at least stick up a bit uh, for D Donald Trump. After all, the economy under Trump uh, yes. was a real uh, rip-roaring success with full employment, with low inflation, uh, with gains for lower income earners, gains for minorities. 
median household income inflation adjusted up 9% by 2019, uh, better performance than all the previous uh, 15, 16 years. I'm wondering if we're making a mistake in talking about American politics and not talking about him, because although he wasn't at your audition there in Texas, he is still in prediction markets just behind DeSantis to be the nominee. And, uh, you know, I ask myself, are the elites, and let's face it, we're part of the elite, are we making the 2016 mistake of underestimating Trump's ability to be the nominee and indeed to win the election? I'm very struck on my peregrinations to such bastions of elitism as Aspen by the, the fact that the elites seem to be having the exact same thoughts about Trump that they had in 2016. And yet his approval, his net approval is better than it was when he won uh, in November of 2016. Carl, is he down and out or should we all take very seriously, whatever we think of him, Goldstone or, uh, or Hero, that he could make a comeback and be the second president since Grover Cleveland to yeah. get two non-consecutive terms? Well, I think he could become the Republican nominee if he wanted to. I, I don't think the Democrats, though, are going to be so stupid as to nominate the one person in America who could lose to Donald Trump as they did in 2016. I mean, Hillary Clinton ran one of the worst campaigns I've ever seen in my life and demonstrated a tone deafness to the American electorate that is just appalling. Here's a woman who's running television ads in Texas weeks and weeks before she lost the general election. Uh, depriving the necessary funds in states like Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania that they needed to win in a hopeless effort to try and swing Texas. And, uh, you know, so I don't underestimate his ability to win the nomination, but I, I, I don't think time is going to be his ally. You now have people running campaigns and they're running polls in their states and districts and finding out he's not that popular. They're finding that he's an impediment to the victory. He's not going to have uh, you know, all these election deniers, the candidates for secretary of state of Nevada and Arizona and Michigan and attorney general in Michigan and Arizona. I think they're unlikely to win. And uh, we have 85 members of the Texas House of Representatives. I was looking at the numbers um, a year ago. Uh, all 85 of them got a higher percentage of the vote in their district than did Donald Trump, the leader of the ticket. And then I started, I was out at, at, at one of the uh, elite's uh, weekend uh, getaway places, Bohemian Grove, and George Will, I happened to mention this in the presence of George Will, and he said, what about other states? So I went and looked, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, uh, North Carolina, Florida, Arizona, Nevada, Georgia, virtually every one of them, it's the same thing. The bottom of the ticket is running ahead of the top of the ticket. And you take all the difficulties we have this year, I think the Oath Keepers, in uh, uh, trials are going to are going to continue to unsettle a lot of people. And and I think we're also going to have people who say, you know what, I appreciate all the good things that he did. But I want somebody who will be able to serve two terms as president, not somebody who's just running in order to you know, seek revenge for having lost the last one and can serve for four years and is 78 years old. We're at one of those moments like 1960, where, you know, Dwight Eisenhower is the last president born before World War One and Kennedy and. Uh, Nixon are the first two candidates who served in World War II in you know low-level positions. Eisenhower sort of the leave of the of that great generation that that uh, that led the the fight in World War II, and Kennedy and Nixon are two of the first generation that who were the grunts and the and the frontliners. And then we came along after Reagan, after you know after Nixon, after after Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, Ford. Uh, Reagan uh, and 41, we, we, we have another generational change and suddenly along comes, you know, the, the baby boomers with Clinton and Bush and Obama and, and then Trump. And now I think we're going to, we're going to have another generational change. And it's I, I, country. Since I was the guy who said the gallstone crack, I do want to clarify, um, there was some great policy achievements under Trump. There were some major mistakes. Mostly, mostly while H.R. McMaster was in the White House. While H.R. McMaster was in the White House. Uh, but uh, my view is, which I want to, this is actually a question because it depends on polling, uh, is that I don't I don't care what you think about uh, Trump's claims about the election, yes or no, but there's a vast, uh, the, the elections hinge on the independents in the middle. We know what Trump's uh, types will do. We know what the woke left will do. What matters is the independents in the middle who swing one way or another. 
and uh, Trump's behavior toward the U.S. Constitution uh, from the election, not just January 6th, but from the election on, refusing to, the one thing we do is peaceful transfer of power. There's 5% crucial that are just never going to vote for the guy no matter what. So that's why I viewed. And then if you want to win, there comes a point where even if you're right, even if you truly believe that, that Trump, you know, that it was stolen and fraud and so forth, it's not going to win. That 5% is not going to vote for Trump. So it's, it's a losing cause. Well, it's more than 5%. I mean, uh, uh, polls at 47% of Republicans want him to be the nominee. That's down 20 points in less than a year. And we now have one out of every six Republicans who think he ought to be indicted over something to do is mishandling a classified information. So they, what, what gets me is that, that if you look at independents, they look on, econ on issues of like, you know, inflation, the economy, crime, border security, they look much more like Republicans than they do Democrats. But when you come to the issue of, of Trump, they look less, less Republican and slightly more Democrat in their outlook on these kind of issues. Can I ask you a question about, we've been focused on electoral politics. Phil Graham was with us um, uh, recently, and he said them something very deep. He said, uh, the problem with Washington is the Democrats love government, so they're really good at it. And they get in and they know how to change the levers. They know how to run a coup of an administrative agency and, and put all the right people in. Republicans hate government, so they get in and they're no good at it. <laughs> but we've, you've talked about a bench of politicians. Uh, I certainly see the, 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 what's the twisting of the administrative agencies. We, we don't really bother passing laws anymore. We just have executive orders. Uh, can Republicans, uh, is there a bench also that can um, turn around the administrative state and undo some of the, the deeply entrenched uh, stuff going on there? Well, I, th I think that's a good, very good question. I think the Supreme Court is going to have a great deal to do on that. And, and it's going to help us because it's going to undo Chevron deference and instead say you actually have to pass a law. But let me give a little bit as we head out here, a little bit of credit to Trump. Bernie Marcus, of all people, shows up in 2015 and says to Stephen Law and, and, and me at the Senate Leadership Fund American Crossroads, we got all these red rules and regulations and we need to have a strategy to undo them. And I'll put a gigantic sum of money into uh, developing a game plan. And we said, we don't need the gigantic sum of money. We need a modest sum of money. And we proceeded to get two good young guys who stepped in and reached out to all the general counsels of every department and agency in, during the Bush years and, and to the degree that they were still around the 41 and Reagan years and basically said, help us develop a roadmap for all the bad regulations and how to go about undoing them. This ended up in two gigantic notebooks. Bernie Marcus for, for, forces his way onto the plane in uh, 2015, in July of 2015, and tells uh, Trump he needs to adopt this plan. Trump adopts the plan. All of the landing teams during the transition were had the, 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 their agency's book with them and instructions on how to begin it. He brought in the kid, and I say kid, he was in his 30s at the time, and makes him the domestic policy chief to make certain that this all gets done. And of course, that's one of the great success stories is they came in and they knew which ones to get rid of by Congressional Regulatory Act, which ones they could withdraw, which ones that they could resubmit, blah, 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 the whole kit and caboodle. And it was one of the great successes of the Trump administration in that it, the, the regulatory burden went back down pretty dramatically. And uh, the, uh, two years into it, the kid gets uh, gets uh, uh, rewarded by being moved from the Domestic Policy Council to the United States Ambassador to UN Organizations in Geneva with the nicest uh, residence of an ambassador in, probably in the world because we, we we bought it in the 20s when we thought the world, the League of Nations was going to be in Geneva. But yeah, the bottom line is, yes, there are lots of people out there who have now been tenured either in the Trump administration or 40 uh, 43's administration who were and, and a lot and a lot with the in the legal community uh, because of the Federalist Society and other activities who are ready to take on the, the regulatory state if they're given the opportunity. So Carl, we have to go. Normally on Goodfellows, we avoid predictions. You can see John Cochran just bristled the thought of doing predictions. So I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you for a prediction, Carl. The morning of November the 9th, the day after the election, tell me what the headline's going to be in the Austin American Statesman. And then secondly, Carl, be it a Senate race, a House race, a gubernatorial race, give us a surprise outcome, something we should, we'll be saying we should have seen that one coming. Headline in the Austin American Statesman will be dark, uh, dark evening. Robert Francis O'Rourke loses again. Uh, uh, the uh, the, the uh, surprise, I'll, I'll give you two potential surprises. 
Republicans uh, take the governorship of the state of Oregon for the first time since 1982. And uh, the Colorado Senate race is uh, unexpectedly close. And maybe with the election of Joe O'Day, the, one of the two best Republican candidates in the country, the other being Tiffany Smiley of Washington State. The only problem is they're both running in very tough territory. Very good. Neil Ferguson, get this man at the University of Austin ball cap, will you? Yeah, there we well, go. Uh, uh, yes, uh, the University of Austin, I'm glad to report, is taking shape rapidly. And so I will be spending some more time in, in Texas, Carl, you'll be glad to hear, because this is a good example of how America works. When there's a problem, create a new institution. And if you want to do it, do it in Texas. Yeah. So before you come to Texas next time, let me know and we'll have a little dinner party so you can meet some prospective donors to the University of Austin. Would love that. And I need to buy some cowboy boots. Sorry, don't forget that Hoover Institution ball cap and, and uh, good Hoover existing institutions. Look, Condi has me doing some event in Dallas. Can you at least make her promise to give me a, a, a Hoover ball cap? I mean, drag right. my sorry posterior up to Dallas to meet with a bunch of your young, young leaders. And I mean, how come nobody says no to that woman? I mean, why do we all say yes? Why are we all so cowed by that woman? I want to no. But the answer is now you know why she's the boss. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And on, that, cowboy hats. and on that note, we're going to wrap up this week's episode of Goodfellows. For not, we'll be back with at least one or two more episodes before the uh, November election. If you want to find out when we're on the air, very simple. Subscribe to us. And while you're there, rate us. Give us a nice review. Leave some stars. Very simple. Three stars in honor of H.R. McMaster. Add a star for John. Add a star for Neil. Five stars. We'll take them. You can also sign up for Hoover's Daily Report. There is the best work of Neil, John, and H.R. on your inbox weekdays. On behalf of Hoover's Goodfellows, Neil Ferguson, John Cochran, H.R. McMaster, our guest today, Carl Rove. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. We'll see you soon. Till then, take care. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in listening to more content featuring H.R. McMaster, subscribe to Battlegrounds, also available at hoover.org slash battlegrounds.